Hear the drums echoing tonight And she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation She's coming in Hey guys, guess what? I am in Mexico this week. It has been amazing, but you know, how can I really enjoy my tropical vacation without getting into a super controversial subject? Today, I'm going to talk about the Methodist Church's decision to uphold the Orthodox position on sexuality. In case you didn't hear about that, last week, the Global Methodist Church held a vote to determine whether or not they wanted to affirm biblical teachings about sexuality or affirm current cultural trends. And in a pretty narrow vote, they decided to officially confirm that practicing homosexuality is contrary to Christian sexual ethics, and that decision inspired a lot of passionate Facebook posts. So, you know, I thought I'd offer my two cents as well. So I'm not currently a Methodist, but I did grow up in the Methodist church, and it was actually in the Methodist church that I had my first real experience with God that I can remember. I think I was four or five, and one Sunday the pastor was talking about sin and God's forgiveness of it through Jesus dying for people, and for some strange reason, my little four-year-old brain could somehow understand the power of that. And I started crying pretty hard, and I distinctly remember my parents watching me and just kind of letting me have that first emotional experience where I really grasped that sin is real and costly, but also that there's hope for everyone. So that's my background with the Methodist Church. I made the decision to become a Christian a few years later, and I have been one ever since. I've gone to various churches pretty much my entire life. I've read the entire Bible maybe four or five times all the way through. I've done campus ministry. I've done missions. I've done a lot of Christian things, and I don't say all of that to suggest that I'm some kind of theologian or that I've always been really good at following Jesus because I definitely haven't. Um, I just say that to explain that I am sincerely invested in Christianity, and I'm invested in the church. And this is an important issue to me, because I want to be as truthful and clear and loving to people as I possibly can, while also staying faithful to something that means so much to me. So one thing I've seen a lot is folks weighing in on this on a pretty surface level, outrage-driven kind of way. And these people seem to have a simplistic understanding of the conflict within the church and the overall issue itself. So I want to try to avoid that approach and just accurately explain what the Methodist Church's decision means and also maybe get into how Christians with an orthodox or traditional view of sexuality can have a more productive conversation about it. So here's what happened. For several years, the UMC has been embroiled in an emotional debate on whether or not to change its stance on sexual ethics. As outlined in their book of discipline, um, homosexuality is labeled as incompatible with Christian teaching. So some leaders in the church, the kind of theological liberals, Um, wanted to change it to allow the regional bodies, meaning like individual churches, to determine their own positions on homosexuality. So they could break away from the official stance and sort of do their own thing. But instead, 
more leaders voted for and ultimately approved keeping their original stance in a vote of 438 to 384. So it was a pretty close vote. And basically, they voted to maintain the denomination's traditional stance against practicing homosexuality, gay marriage, and the ordination of non-celibate gay folks. So now this is being presented as this really big conflict between a bunch of conservative American homophobes and poor rainbow-loving liberals, but in reality, this vote came down to Western progressives versus what is called the Global South. Basically, Africans, Filipinos, and Latin American Methodists, among a lot of other non-white populations where actually the Methodist church is growing the fastest, those countries voted in pretty vast numbers to uphold the biblical stance on sexuality and and reject the progressive alternative. Those who were against the traditional view were largely the white, wealthy um, folks from first world countries. Ironically, though, progressives are usually the same people who screech about not having enough non-white representation in the name of diversity. But unfortunately for them, as we saw in this case, diversity sometimes means that black and brown people might actually have different convictions than you and might be more passionate about staying faithful to scripture. So they can throw a wrench in your progressive plans. And that's why leftists love superficial diversity so much. That way they can sort of say they're so open-minded and pretend to care about diverse perspectives while simultaneously ignoring or demeaning any perspective that actually challenges their own. But we'll get more into that in a moment. So anyway, many Methodist delegates offered their opinions after the vote, and I'll read you a few to kind of give you a a taste of all the different approaches to this. Blay Leon Nathan Ake of Cote d'Ivoire, Africa, offered in favor of the traditional plan. He said, quote, the Bible tells us that we need to stay faithful to the word. It's God's plan. It's the will of God. It's the biblical way. End of quote. J.J. Warren of the Upper New York Conference, who is an openly gay delegate, passionately spoke against Ake's stance. He said, Jesus told the little children to come when the disciples tried to shoo them away. Don't shoo us away. Let us come. End of quote. And then Adam Hamilton, the lead pastor of Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas, which is the largest United Methodist congregation in the U.S., spoke against the traditional plan and called it regressive and alienating to centrists and progressives, which is a little bit funny. I mean, poor centrists and progressives. I guess they will just have to find a safe haven for their ideas and opinions in academia or Hollywood, or the media, or politics, or basically just most of modern American culture. I feel really bad for these rich, influential centrists and progressives with politically mainstream ideas who will not receive any backlash for them. Uh, Other progressives said things like, I think there are a bunch of evil folks in the church who are into the pain thing, which I don't really know what that means. And then another lovely progressive gal from New York said... If traditionalists want to leave, then don't let the door hit you on the way out, which is interesting because, you know, just like five seconds ago, a progressive guy was talking about welcoming the little children. But I guess if you believe a biblical perspective on sexuality, then you can just 
get the hell out. It's the old <clears throat> agree with us or else, which is basically the progressive mantra at this point. You can read more about <clears throat> those conversations in the sources that I linked, but I want to talk more specifically about Warren and Hamilton's comments because um, they're both misleading. So Warren's comment about Jesus not turning away the little children is being used to suggest that the Methodist church is going to be turning away all gay people, which is intentionally misleading, I'm sure. Um, What they will be doing is not allowing people who practice homosexuality to lead their congregations because those people don't affirm orthodox Christian sexual ethics. It's similar to not letting someone who openly and enthusiastically supports infanticide lead a church because killing newborn babies is contrary to Christian ethics. Uh, But if a non-celibate gay person or someone who supports infanticide chose to attend and participate in a church, they would be welcome to, but it's perfectly reasonable for the leadership of that church to determine that they're not qualified to lead. Um, And that's not because straight people or pro-life people are perfect or better. Um, It's just because it's necessary for Christian leaders to affirm Orthodox Christian teachings when their job is to teach others about Christianity. Of course, people who don't like that are free to join progressive churches or create their own church or make up their own rules or make a club or whatever, Um, but Christians don't have to compromise their scriptural mandates to accommodate people who don't believe in them. Um, People don't demand that from Muslims or Buddhists or non-religious people, so it shouldn't be demanded of Christians either. And similarly, Adam Hamilton's comments are flawed um, because he's suggesting that the biblical view of sexuality is regressive and primitive, and that's pretty insulting to the numerous non-white populations that hold that view. It's also kind of hypocritical because Hamilton claims to be so progressive and open to non-white perspectives. So to Adam Hamilton, I would say, Mr. Super Rich Overland Park megachurch guy, Um, You can decide that all the Christians in Latin America and Africa and the Philippines are primitive and regressive, or maybe you can learn something from their willingness to stand firm in their convictions despite intense backlash from progressives like you. Now, maybe at this point in the podcast, you're like, but Carmen, I don't actually think that practicing homosexuality is a sin, so that's why I'm upset about this, not because the progressives are being total hypocrites. And to that, I will simply say, for the sake of efficiency, there are things in the Bible that are unclear and gray, but this isn't one of them. Practicing homosexuality is a sin, and it's not compatible with Christian sexual ethics. Sex before marriage is a sin and not part of Christian sexual ethics. Having sex with anyone besides your spouse is a sin, not part of Christian sexual ethics. Divorce isn't either in the vast majority of cases. Um, There are more, and you can look into those if you are genuinely interested. But the main takeaway should probably be that Christian sexual ethics are pretty strict and difficult to adhere to, regardless if you are gay or straight. Additionally, all sexual sins can be forgiven. That is abundantly clear. But that requires people actually admitting that they are sins first and wanting forgiveness for them. 
And if you're a hardcore progressive lefty listening to this podcast and my position triggers you, just pretend like I am a devout Muslim or that I'm Obama pre-2012, and that should take care of your irrational prejudice towards my Christian perspective. Most of the American church doesn't really want to affirm that all those things that I just listed are actually sins. We've gotten pretty scared of calling anything a sin because we believe this crazy lie that thinking or saying something is a sin means that you're somehow judgmental or evil. You see that a lot from secular people and Christians who love to boil the entire Bible and all of church history down into two words, which are don't judge. And obviously, That is the dumbest thing ever and not actually a workable way to live your life. I mean, what should you do when you find out a 40-year-old man is raping a six-year-old girl? Don't judge. What should you do when you find out a woman wants to kill a newborn infant out of convenience? Don't judge. What should you do when you find out someone attacks someone in a racially motivated incident? Don't judge. And what about you judging the judgy person for judging? You're judging too. So it's pretty obvious that Jesus could not have meant to passively accept all behavior as acceptable. Instead, what he meant when he said not to judge was that you should be as aware of your own sin as you are of other people's. All of us like to look around and compare and sort of stack ourselves up to each other and tell ourselves that we're better for X, Y, and Z. So Jesus's admonition was addressing that. He was saying not judging isn't about never recognizing anything as wrong. It's about recognizing right and wrong and also recognizing that you are not immune to the effects of sin. So speak and act with humility towards other people. And we should talk about sin too, because I don't think very many modern Christians and non-Christians actually really understand what it is. And so that leads to all kinds of weird misunderstandings. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, which I think is really helpful in understanding it as a concept. Hamartia means missing the mark. That phrasing suggests that the premise of sin is that you were created and envisioned with a specific way of life in mind, but you choose to think and act in ways that miss the mark. So when you sin, you're missing God's mark. And when other people sin against you, that's them missing God's mark. That's them not living up to the vision that God had when he created us. And as we know from life, sin can be grossly and obviously evil, like some of the things I described earlier. And sin can be small, simple, seemingly kind of normal things, like manipulating someone or being greedy, which a lot of us do that without even thinking it's wrong. Um, The Bible is emphatically clear that everyone is a sinner and God's redemptive power kicks in when you repent of your sin, when you ask for forgiveness. And that doesn't make your behavior perfect. It doesn't make you perfect, but it makes you more capable of hitting rather than missing God's mark or achieving God's desired outcomes for your character and for your life. And anyone, regardless of how they sin, can repent and receive forgiveness if they want to. But the want to part is important. If you don't agree with God about his vision for human sexuality, that is your right. But Christians do believe in God's vision, and they have a duty to stay faithful to it. And that doesn't mean they're being unloving or intolerant. People just say that to derail the conversation. 
Another one of our culture's favorite talking points is just to repeat over and over and over again that love is love. Again, like the whole don't judge thing, that is such a juvenile simplification. Yes, loving people is at the core of who God is and what he wants Christians to do. But loving people obviously doesn't mean affirming all of their thoughts and actions. Even if you think that you do that, you don't. Because if you think Christians should change their beliefs and affirm what you believe, you are in essence not approving of their lifestyle. And now you've found yourself in yet another hypocritical position. So let's stop pretending like sin and judgment don't exist. God is loving enough to freely and repeatedly forgive anyone's sin. But he also thinks that sin is a big enough deal that he had to send Jesus to come to earth and and tell people to stop sinning. Yes, Jesus actually said lots of times to stop sinning. If you ever want to crack open a Bible and check that out, he says, stop sinning, stop worshiping false gods, stop lying, stop sinning sexually, which means that his love was not some passive, uninvolved platitude like ours usually is. He ultimately died because he couldn't just overlook our sin. Apparently, that wasn't the loving thing to do. And honestly, I think a lot of this mess stems from the fact that currently most American churches explain Christianity wrongly. They basically suggest that you can live the life you want to live and then kind of hire God to be your personal assistant and help you to achieve your goals or make you feel better. And let me tell you from personal experience, God can help you in every area of your life and make you feel better. But that is not the main point of Christianity. The main point of Christianity is that life is not primarily about you. If you want to be a Christian, that means God is inviting you to share in his vision and continue on the path that Jesus walked. Doing that will require sacrifice, and those sacrifices look different for different people. But suffering and sacrifice increase your joy, and Jesus modeled that on the cross. Interestingly enough, progressive Liberal churches that pretend like sin doesn't exist or only care about sins if they're being committed by a Republican, those churches are dying as quickly as churches that preach selfish, self-help Christianity. The churches that are thriving are the ones in places like the Philippines and West Africa, where people love Jesus so much that they want to be as faithful to what he thinks is right and what he wants rather than fixating on what they want or what they think is right. And thankfully, I think there's hope for the United States because I've been so encouraged by the gay conservative movement. That is LGBT folks who have decided to embrace their identities while also letting others embrace theirs. Lots of gay conservatives are not religious and they don't want to be, but they recognize that people like me and Orthodox Christians don't want to embrace a non-biblical view of sexuality. Neither of us wants to force the other person to change. They want the freedom to pursue their choices as gay people, and they want me to have the freedom to pursue mine as a Christian. And that attitude is the only way forward if you actually value freedom and diversity and want it to truly play out. So I'll end here by saying that Obviously, I have no hate whatsoever for LGBT people or people who are sleeping together before they get married or people who are divorced. I mean, why would I hate them? I don't hate myself for the ways that I have failed to meet God's standards 
whether that's sexually or otherwise. So they don't deserve any hate from me. In my view, we are in the exact same boat. I simply know that sin is real and I need forgiveness and I ask for it. And the Christian church must continue to affirm that no matter how much our culture hates it. It seems counterintuitive, but it is the loving thing to do. So thanks so much for listening today. I hope someone out there found this helpful. If you have questions or want to talk about this with me, please send me a message. I would love to hear from you and talk more. And thanks again, and I will see you guys next time. Gotta